right side of the Which half of the left? Uh, oh, right. <laughs> or the bottom half. <laughs> sort of, yeah. <laughs> a little bit of that side and a little bit of that side. Right. Uh, her dad's side. And, um, um, take this one up, Mr. Little. Okay, cool. Uh, that's one, isn't it? If you can see, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I can see the levels you can going see the level, up here. Yeah. Um, uh, and they, uh, she had cousins that came and visited a few times. Mm-hmm. And one thing that she's got to send over there all the time now is Tim Tams. Of course, once oh, you've had God, them, you can never give them up. And apparently, you've got to do this thing. I never used to do it, but my, I think my wife kind of got them into it. Where you use it kind of as a straw yeah. in a coffee thing, really. But you've got to be really quick because it, the whole thing melts. It completely yeah. disintegrates in like seconds. <laughs> so, so what? You, you need you a power. Go, <laughs> you need a power drill with your espresso. You just drill a hole through the top of it. No, you use it like filters through the biscuit. It goes through the. Bi- oh, does it really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, is that right? But yeah. it, it disintegrates really quickly afterwards. So you it's take a you take a cold. drink. Yeah. Oh, and then okay. you've got to shove it in your mouth because otherwise it completely just disappears. <laughs> but yeah, that's, so that's... See. So you've just got to get a little bit of the chocolate off one end yeah. in your mouth and then suck the whole thing through yeah. in the biscuit. Oh, a bit off each end, so... Oh, see, he's, he's you've Australian. obviously done it before. He's the Australian. So he's yeah, he's Australian. <laughs> you know what you're talking about, Alex. I've done it once. Yeah, so that's, mm. that's uh, Tim Tams. There's, there's a, a middle of nowhere Canada, uh, mm-hmm. literally middle of nowhere Canada, Saskatchewan. Where, um, right. My wife's family lives, and they um, we need to send them ten times on the semi-regular basis. Of course you do. Fine. Do help yourself to them. Mm. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. I'll have one in a minute. Yes. Yeah. You, you had us at ten times. Oh, okay. And Jaffa cakes. They, no, these are not the original Jaffa cakes. These are a, an Aldi copy of them. Um, they're made by McVitie's, which is the company that makes digestive biscuits. Oh, okay. Which is how the hell did we get on this subject? Um, but their chocolate digestives are the best biscuits okay. in England, I reckon, definitely. The okay. plain chocolate ones are fantastic. And Jaffa Cakes are made by them, and they were much thicker when I was a child. They, were, they had a sort of deep bowl underneath, which was full of this orange jelly. Ah, mm. ah yeah. Oh, They're pretty close. So this is this is we'll, we'll start a um, yeah. we'll start a biscuit podcast. Mm. <laughs> the biscuit <laughs> this will be cast. episode one. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> see all the big ones that are here. Um, wagon wheels. Oh, those are enormous. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the, the, they were much bigger when I was a child too. Yeah, they were almost the size of the. Um, Maybe it's just relative yeah. to the size of. Children. They were the size of the uh, drivers in the little yeah. speakers you've got. Yeah. They were enormous when we were children. Four you couldn't get one in your mouth. We just bought Pringles. I oh, know we were just talking about the meat pie ones, meat but pie not ones, the meat yeah. pie ones. I didn't buy the meat pie ones. Mm. But I swear that um, the tub is much skinnier than it used to be. Mm. I think they're smaller than much smaller than it used to be. Because I remember as an adult. Mm-hmm. Being able to fit my hand just in it, so you can get, you know, you kind of squeeze it in to get the things. Now I definitely can't. Is that right? So that unless my hand has gotten gigantic <laughs> recently. Fat hands. Fat hands Gabor. It's all that flamenco. The blues, blues name is Fat hands. It's a, it's a ten times. It goes straight to my hand. <laughs> it must do. Have another. Goes to women's hips to my hands. Yeah, straight to your hands. Mm. <laughs> women's hips go to your hands. That's what you said. Shh, that's a. Mm. That's but everything's uh, got smaller in terms of consumer products, hasn't yeah, it? If yeah. you look at the size of Mars bars in those double packs, yeah. they're, they're tiny. Tiny, yeah. Mm. They, I think that's just what they do. They just go, how can we make mm. extra money mm-hmm. without upping the price? Because no one likes when the price goes up. Yeah. Mm. Well, let's just make it 5% smaller. Mm. It's about the same packaging, so it looks like it's the same size. Yeah. Mm. And I swear mm. you buy like chips like or Doritos or anything like that. Mm. There's it. The package is almost the same size, but there's mm. way less in it. Oh yeah, there is. It's, it's less than half full now, mm. and it used to be much more than that. Mm-hmm. It's like these companies want to make money. Bastards! How dare How they? How dare they? Mm. How dare they want to make money? Mm. So on that note, <laughs> maybe we should start. <laughs> uh, welcome to the uh, Tim Tams and Jaffa Cakes podcast. Woo. Jolly good. Um, <laughs> terrific. Terrific. Cool. So this is, hang on, let me think. This is episode 33, I think. Is it really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Of the Super Fun Awesome Happy Time Pedal Show podcast. The shortest name ever in podcast history. Yes, that's what attracted <laughs> me to listening to it. The fact it's that it was dumb. so easy to find because all you have to type in is super happy awesome. Super, yeah, yeah, all in one word. And yeah. There is a, uh, <clears throat> is it on Facebook or on Instagram? There's the um, super fun. Fun, awesome sauce. Yeah. <laughs> oh, is it really? So, so they're copying you already. There's a sauce you can buy. Oh, really? Mm. We should we should talk to them and do a <laughs> promotional thing. I would think that you have, you'd have, that's a very Japanese-sounding name you it have is. there, isn't it? It so is. We, have it you is. got Japanese followers? We have Japanese listeners, yes. Yeah. And we had, as of last month... We Somebody had, from Costa Rica. 
Some from Costa Rica. Ah, you listen. And now from, <laughs> yeah, of course I listen. And now from uh, um, um, yeah. uh, Puerto Rico. We oh, had cool. one listener from Puerto, Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico. New, new players. Oh. So, hello, Puerto Rico. I was waving there. You can't see it, but I was, uh, I was impressed. <laughs> yeah. yeah, hello, Puerto Rico. It's nice to have you on board. Yes, yes. Welcome, Puerto Rico. And welcome, Andy Eastwood. Thank Yay, you very much, Gabor. And thank, thank you, you for joining Yay. us. Thank you so much for being here. Not yeah. at all. I think you've overbigged me up from last week, though. Did, did we? Yes. Well, yes, you did. Possibly. Possibly. Yes. Um, <laughs> he, he did. He, so he didn't. To a queen with Queen, uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> he didn't take over Brian May's duties. No, I didn't. Um, no, no, I wasn't in the Stranglers. You weren't either. in the Stranglers. No. no, you were adjacent to the Stranglers. I did tour as another act on the bill with the Stranglers, oh, with okay, a band okay, called okay. Eddie and the Hot Rods, right. who were very big in the seventies. They were kind of the precursor of punk. Okay, Eddie and the Hot Rods. They were an yeah. English R and B band. Okay, um, very good actually. They had a couple of hits too. Uh, one produced by Steve Lilly White. I don't know if you know his yeah, yeah, credentials. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, called uh, "Do Anything You Want to Do," which you can find on YouTube. Okay. Um, and yes, I toured Spain with those guys, Eddie and the Hot Rods and the Stranglers, as part of a band called the Count Bishops. Okay. Um, whose lead vocalist was Dave Tice, who was the singer in an Australian band called Buffalo. Okay, yeah, right. I've heard that. You should look up definitely because they're yeah. a big part of Australian rock history. Cool. Um, the uh, bass player in Buffalo was Pete Wells, who later went on to form Rose Tattoo with Angry yeah. Anderson. Yeah, yeah. Is Pete playing with Daryl Braithwaite now? Pete that- Wells? No, he's playing with Jimi Hendrix now. Jimi Up in Hendrix? the skies. <laughs> yeah. No, this must be another, another guy with Wells' surname. I don't know. Awesome. R- R- Robin Wells? <laughs> <laughs> Junior Wells? Junior Wells? <laughs> no, he'd be even more <laughs> far <laughs> off than uh, Pete. <laughs> okay. No, unfortunately, Pete uh, Pete died some time ago. Okay. No. Um, he was a lovely guy, too. Yeah, right. The thing about the tats that always surprised me was <clears> I first <throat> saw the tats in London when Dave took me to see them because I was playing over there. And he said, these are friends of mine, you know, Pete and I used to be in a band together. Yeah. Um, Buffalo made about five or six albums. They were one of the first Australian hard rock bands to get a gold album on uh, Vertigo. Okay. Uh, Vertigo label, which okay. of course Black Sabbath were on. Mm. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and there is footage of Buffalo playing at the Horden Pavilion, which you should check out from the 70s. They're really good. Yeah, they okay. had a great guitar player called John Baxter, who was uh, almost a free form metal guitar player. Not metal, hard rock more than metal. I don't like the term metal much. It, Okay. It makes me think of large hair and pointy guitars, <laughs> <laughs> of which I'm not a fan. No. Pointy hair and pointy guitars. Pointy hair and pointy guitars, that's Everything exactly needs right. to be pointy. Yes, that's right, yes. <laughs> and overdone. And a snare drum sound like somebody dropping a crate of glass off the Empire Stri- uh, State Building. And yeah. Casio kick drums. Yes, that's the one. <laughs> that's pretty much it. So, uh, goodbye to all the medalists <laughs> that we just we, alienated. We, we didn't have any. No, we didn't have any medalists. No, you probably either. didn't. Um, <laughs> I think metal metal is responsible for some of the worst aberrations in guitar history. I think the tone of metal guitars is often way overdone, way too heavy oh, yeah. and way too... That mid-scoop thing. Yes, just, that's right, yeah. the mid-scoop. And I think, I must say Zoom were guilty of that in the 80s uh, and 90s too because the biggest market in the world is Japan for anything pretty much, yeah. it, particularly um, guitar processors and guitars. Gadgets and... Yes, that's yeah. right, gadgets, because they have a very small space to live in. Consequently, they're always looking for the way to emulate things where they can't have a Marshall stack in the lounge room. As long as it's battery-powered. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> everything has to be battery-powered. Yes, it does. Oh, really? <laughs> the Japanese, everything is battery-powered. Yeah. yeah they need battery-powered. Everything that's... Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, Zoo made a whole series of little flip-top amp things with their first processors in that, that were designed oh, cool. to be used in houses with paper walls, obviously. Very tiny speakers. Um, but because of that, the tones in a lot of the early processes from the 80s were very, very metal-based, because yeah. that was the biggest market, you know. And you, I'm sure you've seen video of Japanese metal bands. They're, they're, oh, well, they do everything to the extreme. They do, they don't just, they? Massively extreme. Just, like, it's, 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 mm. it's 110% or nothing. Yes, <laughs> that's are, right. I've, I've, I love Japan. I absolutely love Japan. Yeah. And, um, I've never been. Oh, you, it's it's great. I would love it's to go. Such a, it's such a nice yes. place. Yeah. We um, got one of those uh, promotional emails from the airline the, like two weeks ago, three weeks ago. There's $450 return flights to take. <clears throat> really? Yeah. Well, that's worth taking well, up, isn't hopefully it? Hopefully, Sunshine Coast, I mean, this is getting a little bit off topic, but... Um, <laughs> no, it's Sunshine all related Coast, to music. Sunshine yeah. Coast Airport, hopefully, is going <laughs> to... 
start doing international flights soon and Japan is going to be one of the places they right? can fly to. Okay. And um, Jetstar is doing some really cheap stuff. Wow. Yeah, I don't think I'd want to fly to Japan on Jetstar, though. But, yeah, well, <laughs> that would be an uncomfortable experience. Sorry, Jetstar, much as I love your well, prices. Um, uh, 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 all of our mutual friends, Ben McGregor. Mm. Yeah, I he, know Ben. He went... Ben Whittle McGregor. Ben, ben McShredder, yes. Ben McShredder. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Ben. Hello, Ben, if you're listening. Um, love your work, mate. Yeah, I love you. We, we all mm. love you, but uh, it was just funny. He went to Japan... To be part of the um, um, what are they called uh, Paul Gilbert, uh, uh, Mr. Big. Oh yeah. Oh. They did right. like a reunion tour. Yes, they're on tour with Racer X now as well. Yeah. Yeah. Aren't they? Did you see that? Well, this was mm. a couple of years ago. He was. I love Paul Gilbert's playing. By oh, the he's way. fantastic. He's yeah. absolutely magnificent. He's got yeah. style and humour. And nicest yeah. dude and in the world too. Yeah, I can oh, imagine. We got he a chance is. to meet him a couple of times. Yeah. yeah nicest guy in the world. Yeah. Yeah. He comes across like that, doesn't yeah. he? But I, I think technical difficulties must be one of the most incredible. Oh, he's a. He's a. F- Freak player, he is absolute freak player. But he always makes me smile when I see him play because he's always—it's always like he's joking when yeah, he does he's, it. He's, he's, yeah, he, he's so into it too. He's so um, passionate about it. Yes, and it comes across. Have you heard Yellow Matter Custard? Don't know. Ah, I've got you on this no. one then. This no. is something you never heard of. No. A while ago, <laughs> Paul Gilbert um, and the drummer from Dream. Theatre, Mike Portnoy, Portnoy yeah. got a band together in New York and they played Beatles covers for one night. Oh wow! Okay, and yeah. they're absolutely brilliant. Wow! Oh, I've got to check that out. Yeah, they did two shows. <laughs> was um, it filmed and recorded? Yes, it's yeah. very hard to find any video of it, but the audio's out there, and okay. I've got both of the audio I've albums. Got to check that out. That'd and they're absolutely magnificent because they take the Beatles to the level you'd expect which is yeah. exact copies but they also add little bits in in places so he'll play an enormous solo in the middle of something and <laughs> yeah. it sounds great yeah but they they they've absolutely nailed it they've got the harmonies and all the parts right and for people who are not beatles files at all it's worth a listen because it makes you understand how difficult it is to play that stuff yeah it's yeah. not easy music yeah and the one thing that everybody says about the Beatles when they try and copy them is that in every song, there will be some point where somebody says, what's that chord? <laughs> like, the, what's it, uh, mm. the, in the first chord, uh, is it? Hard Day's Night. Hard Day's Night, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have you heard like the a... analysis of that? There's uh, an analysis of that too. There's a few things too. on YouTube that I watched um, about it, yeah. Randy Backman, you know Backman Turner Overdrive? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, went to the studios, to Abbey Road, and George Martin said, so what would you like to hear? And of course, the first thing you'd want to hear is, what's the chord to a hard day's night? (laughs) So he pulled the tracks down and analysed it. And it it is up on YouTube, actually. It's just an audio clip, but it explains what that chord is. Oh, cool. And it's fascinating. If you get three people in the room playing it, it sounds exactly like that. Okay. Also, it's not just one chord. No, No. that's the thing. It's it's a combination. It's a combination of two guitar chords and a bass note, a bass D. And it's really interesting if you listen to it. Cool. Yeah. Mm. Well, there you go. We might put if we find it. it might put a link up to it. Is it, it, it up. Is it supposed to be an E chord? I'm just trying. No, to... it's not. It's a G. Oh, okay, it's been so long since. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Yeah. But it's fascinating if you all oh, strike so it at the, the right point. Sure. So the bass is playing the fifth to. to yes. Get back exactly. To the one. Yep. Yeah. That's right. And then a guita- yep. two guitars play two completely different things, don't they? They're not exactly different. No. No. But they're all related, as you say, fifths. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's why it sounds like that. Yeah. It's very clever, yeah. isn't it? Mm. Yeah. But it makes you understand just how technical it is to play that stuff. Because I don't know if you've ever tried to copy any bands like that. The Beatles or Queen, actually, is another one, too, that's very difficult to copy. Just try something like Killer Queen. The chords just go all over the place. Yeah, and I I know some people um, down in Sydney that uh, were part of... They did these quite elaborate um, uh, national tours where they played one album start to finish yes that's right and had all the you know like Peter Northcote came and did some songs and, and he's a good player that uh, Jeff mm-hmm. Martin from the team I oh, know that was Led Zeppelin that did Led Zeppelin as well but it's the same people that, that every year or so they do a tour and they do a different album oh you know, right all yes. the Beatles albums mm-hmm. or most of the mm-hmm. Beatles albums and um, I know one of the guys um, in it who's like the backing band guitar player because mm-hmm. we usually have a some like Peter Northcote I think did some shows and came and was sort of singing a bit and right. playing guitar up the front and stuff like that mm. um, but I remember he was always he said how hard it is to work out what they're playing and how they how to how to arrange it for a live band yes it is it's very it's very very difficult because there's several factors that come in with bands that old particularly the Beatles that the recording technology was nowhere near what it is now and also the playback technology was worse than the recording technology because if you do something even if you do um, an 8 track master 
and then it's reduced to vinyl, you lose something in that too. Yeah. And if you listen to old records and then you listen to the CD of the record, it's different. Yeah. And not because any, I don't want to get into an argument about old vinyl's better than CD or... Which, which it is. Well, <laughs> <laughs> don't tell everybody. It's different. And MP3s, come yeah. on, don't even start. No, 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 that's right. Well, MP3 is lost... You know, lose, lose a lot. very lossy. Yeah. Um, but if you listen to something that's lossless, then you can hear things in there that you wouldn't have heard on the vinyl. Yeah. And if you listen to, is everybody aware of a day in the life? You know, the last piano chord that comes crashing down. Yeah. With the three pianos. Yeah. They turn the gain up so high on that to get the the sustain on those three pianos that they didn't realise it was picking up everything else in the studio as well. Uh-huh. So if you listen to the CD on cans, uh-huh. headphones for those who don't. Yeah. Not being studios very much. <laughs> you can hear the air conditioning. Oh wow. Yeah, in Abbey Road. Oh wow, okay. But nobody thought you'd be able to hear that because when it was transferred to, to vinyl, vinyl, you, you couldn't it. hear it. Yeah. Yeah. So all sorts of things come out. But mm. even listening to the Beatles and analysing four track recordings of say Sergeant Pepper, you're amazed just by how much they managed to cram on those four tracks. And yeah. what the limitations of that meant were that you couldn't overdo it. No. Because you didn't have oh let's put a cowbell on there for one bar <laughs> yeah. or I know what it needs a flute yeah no it doesn't you, because you because there isn't any room you only have a certain amount of tracks yeah, yeah and you had to put guitar solos on on vocal tracks when there were no vocals because mm. you had to punch in and out and that's the technology that I learned to record on the very first recordings I ever did were on a revox okay just two track so you recorded on one then you bounce that track whilst you're recording on the other one on top of it. Hmm. So you were kind of limited by how many bounces you could do because after a while it, the drums that you recorded on the first one started to sound like a sock full of jelly being hit <laughs> with a sponge. So you had to redo the snare drum again. Yeah. And that's what happened on a lot of the early records too where they would record three tracks, bounce down onto the fourth and then start again. Okay. So there are some cases where, and I've, I've seen people doing this, the snare drum actually went on again on the last track and because the snare drum would sound far too attacky just on its own on top of everything else you would hit a leather chair with a stick okay just to put that crack back in the snare sound yeah so it made you more inventive because you couldn't mm. suddenly go to the box and say oh i want you know a shakuhuchi or a, an amazonian bird call because <laughs> you couldn't find one unless you went out and bought it or went to the amazon that's right <laughs> <laughs> yes with with the abbey studio <laughs> yeah that's exactly right <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but the, the porter studio made it possible for everybody yeah. to record stuff then mm. on four track yep. and it made you more adventurous too because yeah, again yeah. You, you had the same technology mm. that the beatles and the stones had back in the 60s yeah and you were very limited by what you could do but it made you more adventurous yeah i had a porter studio in high school did you? Tascamo? Yeah, I mean everybody had one then. Yeah, I had a Yamaha four track. That was the first four track I owned. Um, I heard a story about, I think it was modeling the band. As in Roy Robertson, the band. The yeah. band, the band, yeah. yeah. Um, the band, the band, yeah. The band, the band, the band. Mm. Yeah, I think it might have been there. They, there was this story where they had um, going all down to like mix, like mix off the console straight to stereo tape. Mm-hmm. Or, or mono maybe even and channel on the tape machine and the drummer was singing doing some parts and his singing was bleeding into all the um, all the drum mics so mm-hmm. they're like we'll just keep it as one yeah. so on mix down no it must be mono because he said they had one fade of his drums and vocals <laughs> <laughs> yeah that'd be right yeah yeah <laughs> yes <laughs> and um, they even committed a little bit of, bit of reverb on the sand like like on all the drum mics? Just, no, just for vocals. Oh, okay, yeah, but on all those mics as well that the, the, the vocal was bleeding into. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was very common so then too. Got, got the sound mm, yeah. and then punched in, like, yeah. in the tape machine once you got the sounds. Actually, yeah. So, drums and vocals, one track. Yeah, that's, yes. That's, that's commitment. <clears throat> oh, it sure is too. And if you listen to the breakdown of Sgt. Pepper, which is actually on the net, and I urge anybody to go and look for this, yeah. it's the separated tracks of the first track on Sgt. Pepper. Okay. Which shows you what they did on each one. Okay. And there's a huge amount of stuff on the first one. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. Because, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right, yeah. Well, no, that's cool. That's very... I, I, it's really cool, yeah. We'll see if we can find some links and maybe put it in the notes below. If you're interested in recording, it's something everybody should look at, yeah. how it was done initially. Yeah. Because it's so easy now to... And I think the other problem that we do now is that we look at what we're recording instead of hearing it. We look at it going past, and yeah. you think, "Oh, there's a big hole there. I'll put something in that." Yeah, and yeah. that's a big mistake, I think. Yeah, a few times I've been in here and mm. said, 
Okay, let's listen and not watch the screen. <laughs> That's a good thing to do, I think, yes. And in fact, um, I was listening to an interview with <laughs> Steve Lillywhite the other day, that producer that's yeah. done U2 and just about everybody. Yeah. Um, Simple Minds, a lot of people from the oh. 80s, uh, was married to Kirsty McColl. You know Kirsty McColl? No. no. Oh, okay. She's got some great records out there if you... Look. Okay. My favourite one is actually called Electric Landlady. Ah. which is the best album title ever isn't Electric it Electric Landlady lovely yes that's right it's no reference to Hendrix no not at all none other than it, <laughs> no, none whatsoever other than it's just a switch round of obviously Electric, Electric Lady Land, Land yeah. which if you've never heard you should go and buy now one of the most important records ever recorded I think yeah um, but we're kind of still doing I think anyone getting into recording still does that thing of like staring at screen and Mm, yes. now like I know like us we've been doing it for a little while not years and years but a couple of years but now we're, we're kind of going back to mm. like how can we be inventive how can we mess things up how can we send vocals through guitar pedals yes so it's kind of going back to that, some of those approaches but just different tools yes like patch base so. not tape Patch base Watching for me. I discovered yes. patch base. <laughs> oh, okay, right. Yeah, yeah right, I agree, Alex. I don't think you need to go back to tape to do that. No. It's just the process of getting the thing that, down that's the interesting part, isn't that it? The thought process of outside the box. Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah, putting vocals through other things. Like mm. the Beatles put vocals through Leslie cabinets and things like yeah, that. Sure. You know what a Leslie cabinet looks like? Yeah. 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 Rotating drum. Yeah. And that's what the vocal on Tomorrow Never Knows is. Okay. Where John Lennon's singing and it sounds like he's going past the mic like that. Oh, no. There's a... Oh, I think it's Imagine. There's a slap back on the whole mix. Yes, there is. That's yeah. right. Yeah, the whole all, across the whole thing. Yes. But a, a lot of the John Lennon stuff has that slap back on it. That, like, well, it's because it's produced by Phil Spector. Okay, and he just puts it on everything. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you listen to Phil Spector's stuff from the '50s and the '60s, you yeah. know the Crystals, the, the Ronettes, and all those kinds of things. Yeah. And even uh, well, the biggest example of that is River Deep, Mountain High. Okay. By Argentina Turner, where there's yeah. massive slapback on her voice, and actually on the strings too. If you hear the strings on there too, listen to the. It's been a while since I listened to that, but yeah, have a listen to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that's a good example of thinking outside the box too. Yeah. I put a slapback on a drum kit the other day. That's cool. That's like uh, Instant Karma by John Lennon too, which was produced by Phil Spector. That's got slapback on the drums too. Okay. Yeah, sure. have a listen to that. But if you can get mm. it almost rhythmically, so it almost creates ghost, ghost notes. Exactly. It's got to be in time, yeah. in the same way that a delay has to be in time if you're recording it too. Otherwise, it just sounds weird, doesn't it, if you're yeah. not in time with the rest of the music. Yeah, yeah exactly the same thing. Mm. That's right. So yes. That was fun. Well, let's again. We'll see if we can find some links and put them below. Definitely <laughs> so you can click on it and listen. To yeah, the, the, I, mean, to I was very lucky. I was in London in the seventies, and well, that's what we should let's let's, yeah. let's go back to uh, Andy Eastwood. Okay. Uh, you're in London. Do we need some more chocolate biscuits? I first? think we do need some more chocolate some biscuits, more guys. Some more I mean, uh, cheerio. We need some more Jaffa cakes. Yes. Yes, we, we do. Rather, rather. Two times more Jaffa cakes. Oh, I have a Jaffa old chap. <laughs> 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 I'm, I'm, I'm the least English of everybody. <laughs> yes, your heritage is more. Um, I'm the I'm the Central European, yeah. Yeah, the, sort of Hungary. That's Hungarian, area. German, Polish. Yeah, mm. that's in my background. My pop was from Yorkshire, so that's. Well, there you see. There's, there's a tie. Ah, oh, Yorkshire lad, eh? Basically, mm. you're basically English. <laughs> um, so, uh, you grew up in England, obviously. Born and grew up in England. I did. Um, how did how did the whole music thing start and how did the whole getting into doing studio work and, mm. and how, how did all that sort of stuff happen for Well, you? my parents were very musical to start with. My mother played the piano and sang very well okay. and um, led choirs. <clears throat> okay. And I have recordings of my parents singing in, um, in churches in England and it's really nice. So I grew up with a lot of music around me all the time, and they were very open to the idea of, of letting me play anything. Okay. So while they had a lot of classical records, and what you would term light entertainment records now, I suppose, as soon as popular music hit in the 60s, and for me the Beatles were the biggest standout, because up to that point most popular music was pretty uninteresting. Mm. And the Beatles stood out, really, like lollies on top of a cake, as soon as you heard any of their stuff on the radio. The one that really set me on fire was I Want to Hold Your Hand. Okay. Which is true for a lot of people my age. Okay. There's a great drummer, Dom Famularo, from New York, who um, also talked about that too and said that was the thing that set him on fire, that particular one record. Because okay. it's so exciting, it's got double stops in it, turnarounds, and fantastic harmonies. And that was the point when I thought, I'd really like to learn how to play the guitar. Okay. But trying to get somebody to teach you the guitar 
1964 was almost impossible. They didn't see it as a real instrument. No. Nobody did. Yeah, right. So most people my age are self-taught because of that. Okay. We had one book to start us off, and the book I started from was a really bad one called Burt Whedon's Play in a Day. <laughs> and Burt Whedon was a sort of sub-shadows type guitar player, really okay. straight-looking, you know, tie and blazer. Yeah. All the things that I didn't want to wear. <laughs> <laughs> and the only option I was given at school was, would you like to play the clarinet or the piano? And I looked at both of them and I thought, well, if I've got a clarinet in my mouth, I can't sing. And if i got to learn to play the piano, I've got to learn to read music, which mm. looks like a really hard call for me. Mm. And it is for a, you know, a 12-year-old boy. Yeah. yeah. Reading music is not really a great option unless you're absolutely no. determined to play a classical instrument or an orchestral instrument. If you yeah. are, great. More power to you. Because of that, I didn't learn to read music until I was about 25. Okay. Because I didn't see it was necessary. And the only way to teach yourself was to listen to records over and over again and just put the... The oh, bag. The, yes, <laughs> and in fact, to slow it down enough so that you could hear what was going on, the only option was on early turntables either to switch it to sixteen, which is half the speed of a normal album. Yeah. So everything sounds like that, <laughs> yeah. and learning the licks at and half speed up, yeah. and half pitch. Yeah. Does that drop the pitch too? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. That shows your age, Alex. Yeah, because uh, Alex is a young one in here. Yeah, it's yeah been with, a while since I've done. I've not. Yeah, I've got a turntable upstairs, but I've never actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Played with the speed. Because yeah. nowadays, with things like the amazing slow downer, which is an app I use constantly when I'm teaching, do you know that one? Yeah, yeah. Great, isn't it? It slows it down and doesn't change the pitch. Doesn't change oh, cool. the pitch, or the you can slow the pitch down and not change the speed. Yeah, oh, nice. So you can take it up by a tone or a semitone. If you've got a you know a key that's really awkward, like if some because as we know, a lot of guitar players tune down to E flat. I'm putting my hand up. Oh, are you really? I'm Does anybody, anybody else in the room do that? <laughs> oh, Mr. Van Halen and Mr. Hendricks. Yeah. I think you yeah. did that too. I think it, I, mm. I, I actually like the tone of it. I did it originally. It, yeah, I did great. it um, yeah, because it's. Mm. I, I find if I have five gigs a week, you know, yeah. in a week, mm. but a fifth gig in standard tuning, I'm really struggling. And vocally, just vocally, yeah. yes, exactly. And, and that's just why something people like do it. Um, tuning into E flat, mm. the fifth gig, I'm struggling less. So yes, that's, that's why I started. Well, but so I actually like the, the the tone of it better, especially I think soul, it has solo a, acoustic guitars. Kind of have had this, yes, bigness. It just has it's embiggens. It? <laughs> it embiggens. That's a good word. Yeah, it does. It because if you listen to Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix, you know, slight return. Yeah. with that wah wah intro. If you play it in E, it doesn't sound as good as if you played in E no, flat. If, if, it's just got, isn't that weird? It's just got yeah. something to it. It's <laughs> yes, just got it does. To it. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so that's why I, I tune. So I put my hand up. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> that's good. There's nothing wrong with it. A lot of major artists do it. And it no, also there's nothing wrong with it. No, no, no. no, 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 no there isn't. No, that's okay. They were spitting in my direction just then. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't think any less of you. Well, it's, it's hard to do that anyway. <laughs> when you start life. Yeah. But if, if it makes it easier to sing, and as well, it means you can sing at the top of your chest range, mm. then why not? Because, as we know, pushing your vocal always sounds better if you're singing at the top of your mm. chest range. Mm. So, l looking at music then, I had to teach myself just about everything. Mm. And when I started playing, it was in school bands. But I first started playing the drums before the guitar because there were only okay. two people in the school that could play drums, and I was one of them. So I ended up playing with everybody, oh, cool. including the seniors, for functions and things. When there was an end of term concert or something, they'd call me because uh, the other guy just didn't want to do it. Okay. <laughs> but then I thought, well, I'm at the back here. I need to be at the front. And that's when I started taking a real interest in guitar. And again, I, I, I just looked at my mum's guitar, which she'd had then, which was a present from my father, and it was terrible. It was one of those guitars where you think, where are the arrows that come with this? Because the action was you know, about two Tim Tams off the fingerboard. It was shocking. That's uh, for our American friends. That's, uh... That's a biscuit. It's about the uh, thickness of an Oreo. Okay, well, there you go. Yeah, probably something like that. Yeah. Yes, for our American friends. Two Oreos. Two Oreos high. <laughs> yes, the action was measured in Oreos. <laughs> yeah, times were tough in them days. <laughs> and so I, I learned, but I, I could only learn up to about the fourth fret because everything else was agony Just, past yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. And the first thing I ever figured out was I'm Not Your Stepping Stone by the Monkees. Okay. Which was later covered by the Sex Pistols. Oh, cool. Yeah, isn't that cool? Okay. It's got a very basic riff on it. Da, 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 and then goes back again. 
Okay. It's the equivalent of smoke on the water now. Yeah. yeah which yeah. everybody learns. That that's the first thing they learn, isn't it? Yep. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the, the the guitar teacher and me talking about. Yep. Yep. That's correct. <laughs> yes. And it's a sense of achievement when you teach it to a ten-year-old that they go oh, and say, yeah. "Look what I learned today." Yeah. And they show it to dad, and dad is yeah. very proud. <laughs> he is. Yes. Yes. Because he grew up to Keep that. Keep paying your money. That's, that's, that's the one. That's why dad is forking out the cash for the lessons. Mm. No, but it is good to get kids playing a song. Yes, it is. Well, that's it. Their attention span just pisses off around the room. Absolutely, it does. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I mean. I never, I never go to. It. I mean, reading music and stuff. Unless no. you really want to do it later on, but at first, no, you just want. I agree. Show yeah. two chords. Um, yes. And you know, simplified two finger versions of chords. Mm. Yeah. And they power chords and tab. And they look. Yeah, tab. Yeah. And tab isn't tab the best thing ever, really, for great. guitar players. Yeah. And somebody who's classically trained said to me the other day, "If you can read tab, you're reading music. What's the difference?" Yeah, it's pretty much the same. It's a yeah. The, it's rhythmic, a language. Rhythmic. The rhythmic data. You don't get the rhythmic. No, the, you, the can, you don't get thing. stops or half time but, or anything like but that. Other than that, it's all there. It's all. Yes. It's everything you need. And it's it's probably useful to see the tab underneath the notation because then you can see the, the as you can see the syncopation of, of guitar the guitar pro. That's I, I always yes. I, I try to get my students uh, the mm. ones that are more into it um, yeah. use the software mm. guitar pro because then um, you have it written out and you have the notation above it. Yes, and, and cool. it and it comes past as it's They'll going through. Be, it's great. Probably pick up the stave stuff just through. Having just, it there, yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. Like, the more you see it, the easier yeah. it gets. Well, and then, and then, um, I, what, what what I tend to do um, with my students, if if I can see they're really into it, um, instead of really teaching them about notes, I just kind of give them a rough idea as to whether it's a quarter note, a half note, or you know, mm. so they can roughly not so much pick what the notes are, but they can roughly see the timing. And yeah. once they between that and tab, you set. I agree. I think that notation is useful for what you're saying. It's not necessarily the chords because no, it's no. really hard to work out. And well, even an E major chord written in the treble clef is it's, really hard to yeah. figure out if you're not used to it yeah. because it's underneath the bottom line. Yeah. So you got to yeah, yeah. Yeah. And even really good players that I know sometimes even keyboard players will write in that bottom note because otherwise it's too. If you easy glance to go past, past it quickly, yeah. yeah, it's too hard. How to many see. lines? One, two, three. Oh, yeah. okay. Mm. That just goes like that. Yeah. Um, but it's just yeah timing. But I mean, this is only if they actually into it. Yes. You know, at first, you don't do that yeah. sort of stuff. No, you don't. And it's more valuable because if you've played anything like a musical or where there's a giant score, you'll find that the guitar score is written with the chords above it anyway. Yeah. Because mm. it's too like time-consuming to write big band stuff. Sort of yeah, yeah. Like it's too time-consuming to write B flat major seven in terms of all the notes. Whereas if you can just write B flat major seven, everybody knows what that looks See, like. I I had to learn how to read music. Because I was involved. This is in 1998. Mm. I'm gonna say. Um, I ne I, I'm all self-taught guitar player, so I never had any lessons or anything like that, and I never really did any music. But I uh, was involved in a production of a musical, Jesus Christ Superstar. Mm. I was hired to do it, and I got given the score, which was two phone books, X one, X one, and X two. Yes, and it had nothing other than notes. It didn't have chords written above it. it didn't, really, nothing. It was wow. just notation. Mm. And they gave it to me, and sort of between listening to the CD mm. and looking at it, I kind of learned how to read music. Not mm. very well, but. Mm. I can't sight read or anything like that. No, I can't. But if you, if you put a, something in front of me and give me an hour, yeah, <laughs> yeah me know, too. I'm, I'll, I'll yeah. can sort of find my way through it. Yes, but um, uh, that's how I had to learn. Uh, they gave it to me, and mm. it was I don't know three months till rehearsals. Yeah. So there you go, Act One, Act Two. Learn this. Yes. And nothing else. It literally was just mm. so treble did, cliff. Did you just write chords above once you worked it out? Well, I had to return the books, so I wrote it out pencil on paper. In red pen. No, no, I yeah. wrote it. I actually did on paper. I did. I did sort of my own chord charts and stuff oh, okay. like that on, oh, on okay. paper. I, I would probably pencil the chords in above all the notation. I, 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 I quite often I like um, writing things out completely separately because then it sort of sticks more. Yeah, sure, it does. Yes, yeah, so yeah. you analyze the whole thing and put yeah. it down. So yeah. you actually spend an hour. Yeah. Doing it, yes. it sticks a lot more in your memory, yeah. a lot more. And it was great. It was yeah, a fantastic it. experience. It was a great thing to do. It is, isn't it? it? Was because just it, hard. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's very hard. And I've done the same thing too. I had to play bass in a musical too. And of course, reading the bass clef is totally different because I wasn't used to doing that that well. Yeah, I didn't learn to play bass that way. 
Yeah. Um, so I had to write in every single note because otherwise I've totally screwed it up. See, I, no one told me and I never knew about key signatures. <laughs> ah! Because <laughs> I, I was playing songs, I like, this sounds a bit funny, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, look, there's a sharp there. What's wrong with the and rest then, of the band? Yes, that's right. Aren't you guys reading no, the, the same thing, thing as me? All the other guys in the band were all, we were all in a band together before. We were, we were an original oh, yeah. band. And, oh, I um, see, right. The producer, so they hired the whole band in Yeah, to the do producer it. came in and said, Great. we really like what you're doing because we're sort of an instrumental kind of relatively mm. quirky band and um, um, the producer came and saw us and went you know we want you as a whole band so there was sure. there was four mm. of us um, and uh, yes yeah, so we all had to learn it and we're kind of looking through going this doesn't sound right <laughs> <laughs> and then I learned that there's such a thing as key signatures yes mm. so the you know sharps and flats yes the so one thing yeah exactly <laughs> the one thing that that taught me to do to playing in a musical was that everybody makes mistakes oh, it yeah. wasn't just me no no and sometimes you'd get to the end of a piece and somebody would still be going for two bars because they hadn't counted it right. Yeah. yeah. They were coming in at bar 135 or something and they hadn't counted it right from a bar 127 when they stopped. Yeah. Um, but it taught me that it was okay to make a mistake occasionally. Yeah. It's forgivable. I, des- I think there's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with mis- mistakes. How you, how you deal with the mistakes is the- That's exactly <laughs> right, Alex, yes. Well, you know the difference between a, a good note and a bad note, don't you? One fret. One, that's it. That's <laughs> Screw it. it up. Just move one fret backwards or forwards, and, it, and then and you do it hitting, twice, and it's jazz. It <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. And I'm right. modal. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. Three times as progressive rock, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yeah, that's right. Three times as progressive rock. Yes, which was a ghastly period. Um, <laughs> so, I was then. I left school and I got a job. Funny enough, at Harrods. Okay. Yeah, Harrods the department store. I was a, a management trainee for two years there. Then I thought, I don't want to do this. So I left. And then I worked at Bieber. I don't know if you've ever heard of Bieber. It was Justin, Hallelu- but no. No, not Justin Bieber. <laughs> not spell like that either. B-I-B-A. It was okay. a very trendy store, which was based on sort of Art Deco. Okay, cool. And it was fantastic. It, it was part of the, I suppose, swinging 60s, early 70s. Carnaby okay. Street. Okay sort of ethos but it then yeah, mutated cool. into a bigger store and it was run by a woman called Barbara Huldenicki who designed a lot of David Bowie's stage costumes mm, and her okay. and her husband Fitz took over this giant department store which had a roof garden called the Rainbow Room and outside in the garden there were flamingos walking around and it was really over the top Sounds a bit that awesome. sounds awesome slightly girls. eccentric. Very eccentric. <laughs> it was a great place to work. I worked there for a year. Cool, yeah. yeah very cool. Um, they were very nice people. Her husband was called Fitz Okay. Um, so Barbara and Fitz ran this place, but it just it eventually just collapsed because of not everybody wants Art Deco furniture and clothing. And they mm. even had Bieber baked beans in an Art Deco tin. So they had a food hall, they had furniture, they had clothing. Oh, wow. So like, similar to Harrods, yeah. So yeah, it was everything. like Harrods, but a very, very trendy Art Deco yeah. Harrods. Yeah. So the top in the Rainbow Room, they had music acts on all the time. Um, they would go from strange stuff like, do you remember Manhattan Transfer? You heard of those guys? Yeah, yeah. I know the name. Yeah. They, for whatever reason, follow, are following me on Instagram and liking lots of my stuff. Is that right? Manhattan Transfer, yeah. I honestly don't know why, but... Well, Manhattan <laughs> Transfer, if you're listening now, I saw you guys in the Bieber <laughs> Rainbow Room in 1974 wow. or something. That's and they cool. were great. Yeah. Fantastic. Oh, they're fantastic. Yeah. But as well as that, they had rock acts on as well. Okay. So, I don't know if you've ever heard of a band called the Heavy Metal Kids. No. from the 70s check them out have you heard of a TV show this is going way back guys stop me if I'm boring you have no, <laughs> no, no that's, a, that's all great that's all great you passed me too <laughs> yeah the heavy metal kids had a singer called Gary Holton who was in uh, who was an actor as well and he was in a series called Alf Wiedersehen Pet which if you look that up was about yeah. English workers working in Germany okay it's like a sort well, of no, drama no, no, show yeah. yeah and the band, the Heavy Metal Kids, included some really good players too. One of whom, um, Ronnie Peel, is now over here. Okay. And um, the bass player, who went by the names of uh, no, James T. Rockwell, which I thought was a great name. That's a very, isn't that's it? A very rock name, isn't it? I thought, yeah, that's a cool <laughs> name. Yes. And I saw those guys, and that was a turning point for me too, because they just mesmerised me. They were so powerful. Okay. And this was just before punk, really. Okay. And then I ended up working for a company called Rose Morris in London. And I got that quite by accident after working at Bieber because I thought, okay, if Bieber's collapsing, I'm getting out. Hmm. And then I went to an agency called Manpower, which specialised in giving jobs to 
actors and guitar players okay, or okay. band members who weren't working at the time. So I, I started working there, and Mick Jagger's brother, Chris Jagger, was often employed by them. Oh, okay. Yeah, so this whole community... There's someone living in the shadows of <laughs> Absolutely, <brother>. yes. <laughs> that would be hard work, wouldn't oh, it? yeah. <laughs> and Paul McCartney's brother, Mike. Well, there's another guy living in a, in a yes. very big shadow, very dark shadow. But he actually changed his name to Mike McGear, and okay. he was in a band called The Scaffold in the 70s. Okay. Look them up. The scaffold. Wow. Okay. Yeah, with a poet called Roger McGough. Okay. There you go. There's some interesting trivia. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> this agency then, I worked for them for about three months, doing awful jobs that all musicians have to do. Yeah. You know, sweeping a warehouse, that kind of thing. And I, at that point, I think I couldn't do this for a living. How do these people work in a factory for forty years without going crazy? Yeah. I don't, I don't know. know. No. I don't know. Um, is it lack of ambition or is it just the inability to do anything else? I don't know. I don't understand it. No, I don't either. No. Uh, I, I mean, more power to the, those people because somebody has to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, but I it can't. wasn't for me. And no. then I, I just saw an advert in a newspaper. A telephone salesperson wanted for a musical instrument wholesale company. Oh, yeah? So I rang them and got an interview. And when I went there, I said... So a few people, you must have seen a few people by now, surely, because you know what it's like if you go for a job like that now. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we'd love to It's like it. saying, you know, the Red Hot Chili Peppers require a guitar ready <laughs> in the newspaper. You know, there'd be a line of 2,000 people outside the door, wouldn't there? <coughs> yeah, yeah, probably. They said, well, we've only seen three people. We've had the advert out for three months. Wow, okay. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. And I got the job in half an hour. Wow. Yeah. That's good. So I worked at that company for two years. I started off in the telephone sales office, which was answering calls basically from music shops around the country ordering things okay oh like a wholesaler yeah, yeah that's right like a wholesaler here cool yep. like Yamaha Music or something yeah, like yeah, that yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and after about a year there they moved me up to the advertising department okay so I worked in the advertising department there for a year and from there I got to go around the country with another guy that worked there um, a guy called Rod who I became great friends with and I'm still in touch with okay and we used to do the Melody Maker Rock Folk Competition, which was a talent show, which was organised by Melody Maker, the paper. Yeah, yeah. Because rock papers were huge in the 70s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Melody Maker, New Musical Express and Record Mirror were the equivalent of the Daily Telegraph or the Guardian or the Sydney Morning yeah. Herald. They were published every week. Yeah. yeah. And they had a whole staff of people on as well. Mm. Can you imagine what it was like being a rock journalist in the 70s? That would have been cool. Fantastic. <laughs> And <coughs> you, were, you were flown everywhere by record companies. Invited to probably rather excessive parties. And Absolutely like excessive parties, yes. Yeah. And mm -hmm. you got huge amounts of free records. Which is always a handy thing. That's to right. So the guy, Rod, that I worked with, um, he became friends with a journalist called Charles Shaw Murray, who was a writer for New Musical Express, mm -hmm. a very good writer. And about the time of punk... 76, 77. Um, Charlie was one of the foremost experts on punk music and blues. Okay. And any of these writers that you hear of, it's worth investigating. Nick Kent was another one from that time. Okay. Who hung out with Keith Richards a lot. Okay. So he's got great stories about the Stones. Okay. And Charlie had great stories about everybody. And he's got a very, very good book out, which you can get online, called Shots from the Hip. Okay. Which is a good title again. Yeah. It's about hip people and... yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, there's mostly articles that were published in New Musical Express, so they're not enormously long articles. They're like four okay. pages long about the Sex Pistols playing in Stockholm or Bruce Springsteen's tour yeah. or an, analysing records because if you think about the way music was sold then, it's totally different to the way it is now. Oh, yeah. The only way you could get music was on vinyl or you could copy it onto a tape, which meant the quality was terrible. Yeah. Plus, you didn't get the artwork of an album, too, which is half the reason for buying it, isn't that's, it? That's, I still, that's one thing I don't get about the whole MP3 thing nowadays. To me, the artwork is, is almost just as important as the music. It is. Well, if you look at albums, yep. great albums through the years, and this is what makes the difference for me, you open it up and you see who the producer is, who played the flute on it. Yeah. And that information doesn't appear on no, a lot of things. No, MP3s, no. No, and not even on CDs sometimes, because <laughs> it's so small, even if they shrunk it down to do yeah. a CD or issue, you can't read what's on it. No. But, so I knew, you know, the writers, the producers, the person who played the tabla on yeah. a Beatles record, because yeah. it was all on the back cover. And yeah. then you had these great photos that were art pieces themselves. Yeah, that's that's the thing. That's, yeah. I'm, I'm sort of going more and more back to... I, I've mm. been buying lots of vinyl again lately. Yeah. And, and uh, Thankfully, a lot of the music I like 
they release music as CD, MP3, or vinyl. Yeah. And I, I, it's just some, you need the artwork. To me, that's a, such a vital part of the it's almost, of album. It's almost like band match. Yes, it is, Again. exactly. Yes. Yeah. But to me, it sort of almost sets the mood mm. of, a, of an album. Yes, it does. You, you look at yep. the artwork. And, mm. and I mean, that's always the thing. You, you get, and it, it's, it's rare to find it nowadays, I find. This is, you know, old farts talking now, but... Mm. Um, of course we are. <laughs> it used to be, a new album comes out, you're really excited. Very. And the new album comes and it's almost like, you know, you, you've got your hair, you know, yeah. standing, you know, and mm. on, your, on your arms and legs and and you put the record on or, or CD on or whatever and as you're listening to the first few songs, you look through the artwork yeah. and it sort of sets a place and sets a scene. Yes. And nowadays with MP3s, you just don't get it. It's this sort of, oh, let's just, or not even MP3s, I mean Spotify. Yes, you don't even like care, that. you know. No, just, oh, no. whatever, listen to that, yeah. you know. Yeah. <clears throat> I had a bit of that sort of growing up through like early 90s and stuff, but it was on CD, but you still had artwork and credits mm. and li- mm. lyrics. See, yes. I'm, I'm still from the generation when I first started listening to music that was pre-CD. Yeah. Well, um, and, and I used to go to the shops yes. that had and you look yeah. at records. You know? Oh, I would go at least once a week and look through record shops just to mm. see what was it. And imports were interesting too because they had yeah. stuff that you couldn't find on yeah. anything local yeah. Yeah. Um, and record stores were enormous yeah. and journalists because of that held great sway and the way we look at music now we don't read somebody's opinion of it anymore no which is what you did in the it's 70s disposable. Yeah. yeah but also you weren't going to invest whatever however much it was 10 bucks or something in a vinyl album until you found out whether it was worth buying yeah and the only person who could tell you whether it was worth buying before it came out was a journalist the journalist yeah. yeah true so you would follow each journalist because he had the same taste as you so, yeah, yeah yeah and if he rated an album four stars you'd probably go and buy it thinking yeah. oh well if he likes it i probably will yeah so they had tremendous power. Yeah. The record companies were falling over themselves to give them things yeah. all the time. And because of this, Charlie Murray had a great deal of contacts within the music industry, uh, one of whom was Phil Liner from Thin Lizzy. Okay. The bass player in Thin Lizzy, yeah. yeah. And Chalky Davis, who was a fantastic photographer who is still working. Mm-hmm. Uh, he lives in New York. He worked for Apple for years, but before that he was the star photographer for NME. Okay. The Musical Express. Yeah. So he took a lot of the great pictures Oh, cool. That exists in, in the rock world. Wow. Um, along with um, two or three other photographers who probably nobody would have heard of. There's a guy on the coast who's retired now, but he's quite famous. Oh, God, I can't remember his name. Oh, yeah, I remember. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's got some amazing shots of Hendrix and oh, really? stuff like around that era. Um, maybe the cars and. Yeah, I, I, do, I do know of the dude. Oh, I wonder yeah. who that is, yeah. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. But Man, was it Ben as well? He was, doing, ben? he was doing some workshops my girlfriend went to. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah. Ben, didn't Ben, again, Ben McGregor, Shredder, didn't he know some guy as well? Or wasn't he hanging out with someone or something? And he had all these photos up on the wall, like of, like Isaac Hendricks and stuff, and they started talking and went, oh, yeah, I took all these photos. Back wow. I wonder who I'm that sure is. I'm sure Ben yeah. was involved in that too. That sounds mm. like a Ben story. I think that's a Ben story. I think Ben always okay. ends up in those situations. Yeah, yes, he does. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Ben yeah. finds himself in... Yeah. Weird situations like that. I swear there was something to do with Ben, yeah. Oh, okay. I remember that. I have to ask Ben, yeah. yeah. But yeah, Chalky took all those sorts of pictures too. Do you know the Thin Lizzy Live and Dangerous album? Have you seen the cover of that? Possibly. I can't it's, think of it. It's right one now. of the greatest live albums. It's a double live album. There's a great shot of Phil Liner. It looks like he slid across the stage. Um, oh, I think so, yeah. I think in yeah, leather pants. No, yeah, well, yeah, Chalky yeah. took that one. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. he also took the um, picture on the second record I made. He, he's a great photographer, fantastic. And because of Charlie's association with all of these people, um, the very first record I made was at a studio in Path called Pathway Studios in North London, okay. which was the studio that Elvis Costello used for his first album. Cool, cool, cool. And Nick Lowe produced Elvis Costello's first album. Yeah. Do you know who the band is on Elvis Costello's first album? Because I know you like Elvis Costello. On his first album? Yeah, My Aim Is True, which has Alison, The Angels Want to Wear My Red Shoes, all Welcome to the Working the Week. Really good songs. Yeah, fantastic um, songs. Do you know who the band is? It wasn't his normal band. No, he didn't have the attractions together by then. He only had the attractions together by the second album. Okay. Bruce Thomas, Pete Thomas and Steve Knight. I don't know then, no. It's Huey Lewis and the News. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. But they were called Clover. Before they became Huey wow, Lewis okay. and the News. I didn't know that. No, I didn't know that. Mm. Good name change. That's yes, <laughs> absolutely. That's right. Good name change. Fantastic playing. And this <laughs> studio <laughs> was... Killer band, yeah, yeah. The studio was really tiny, Pathway Studios. Yeah. yeah. Um, the control room was almost smaller than this. Yep. So the first time we went in there, I remember thinking, wow, is this what it's really like recording a record? 
you know, it smells musty. And there was, there was a green <laughs> room upstairs. Yeah. And the interesting thing about the green room was it had the reverb tank in it. Oh, wow, well, okay. Yeah, because, of course, there was no such thing as... Was it a plate? Yeah, yeah, yeah it yeah. was a plate reverb in an enormous tank about the size of a, oh, oh, this couch. Okay, yeah. Looking at this, it's about, oh, the, le the length of a person. Two minutes. Yeah. One gabool long. Yeah. One gabool long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's about 80 tim That's right. Yeah. 80 tim tams. <laughs> yeah, 80, 80 tim tams, yeah, or Oreos, if you're in America. Yes, if you're in America. Too. So, yeah. so the reverb tank was in this room along one wall. And when they were doing vocal tracks, you had to be quiet. <laughs> wow, that's cool. Yeah, you could shout into the reverb tank and it would yeah. come out downstairs. So if you <laughs> really wanted excellent. to annoy people, you just bang on the reverb tank and they were doing their vocal, <laughs> which sounded like a thunderstorm in the cab. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, that's how primitive it was. That's cool. But this room had the greatest drum sound. Okay. Absolutely yeah. brilliant acoustics in there, yeah. And it wasn't anything special. It didn't have baffles or anything up. It was just the shape of like, the room and the way it was used. It's like people that, that, that talk about when you go to like Detroit to, to Motown, where all the yeah. records were recorded. It's, it's this oh. tiny little thing. It's the back of a record shop. Yeah, and it's, yeah. there's nothing Where the Fun Brothers it's, recorded all the yeah. Motown stuff, yeah. And like, all these insane hits were in there. That's right. <laughs> like, um, yeah. Sound City? I think it was Sound City or maybe Sunset Sound. One of those LA studios. Used to be a um, mechanics um, I think that's Sound City. I think Sound City. Uh, where that desk came out of that uh, yeah. Dave Grohl's got. Because the floor slopes off to one corner where yeah. the oil used to run off. That's oh, right, yeah. <laughs> so you're standing there thinking, maybe I shouldn't have had that third drink to this solo. <laughs> As you slide down into the back of the room. Yeah. Uh -huh. So anyway, that all uh, in this little studio here, I'm going a bit faster now because I've noticed we've taken up 50 minutes already. Already? Uh, we can make it... We can. We can make it a two-parter. Edit Let's it. Let's make it a two-parter. Edit all the rubbish out. Only half oh. the biscuits. Okay. No, yeah, we've got tons of biscuits left, so no, no, we'll make it a two-parter. <laughs> What's the time? Should we have a biscuit break? Let's, all right, well, let's uh, let's uh, let's return. So this is part one yes. of Ed Eastwood. Okay. Stick around next week uh, for part two. <laughs> uh, and don't forget to subscribe to all the social media crap and all that stuff. <laughs> And I'll try to put some links to some of the stuff we were talking about um, down below somewhere as well, uh, and all the yeah, all that stuff. So uh, see you next week. Bye. See ya. <laughs> cool. Is it fifteen minutes really? Late?